And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Want to thank everybody for downloading the episode and listening to us today, whatever day it may be for you. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last couple of episodes. We had a pair of special episodes, uh, first covering The Last Dinosaur with uh, fellow Two True Freak member, Dr. Bill Robinson, and then taking a look at the uh, Monsters on the Loose in the Space Station Opus, The Green Slime, with my brother Jason. I think both those episodes came out really well. I was really proud of both of them, mostly for the contributions of my broadcast (laughs) partners more so than myself. But that's the way the cookie crumbles, and I hope you guys had a chance to download those and check them out. Uh, We've got a good show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at the next in line in the Heisei films from Toho. It's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1993. We also are going to be taking a look at the next issue of Shogun Warriors from Marvel Comics number 18 as we slowly march towards the finale of that series. Uh, Before we get into the show, though, we've got a couple of news items here. Up first, uh, coming out of Subaraya Camp, is the newest Ultraman series, Ultraman X. And like Ginga and Ginga S, this will air as part of the new Ultraman Retsudent series. It uh, begins broadcast in July. No word uh, that I have been able to find on how many episodes to expect for this series. The series will uh, feature both Spark Dolls, once again, as well as cards as the two kind of collectible gimmicks for the series. And uh, the story involves a hero, an ultra hero, who has to work with the special defense team. Now, I'm assuming this is pronounced Zio. It's spelled X-I-O. I think that would be Zio, but it could be X-E-O, I suppose. Uh, and sounds kind of like a traditional uh, Ultraman series with our hero teaming with a uh, defense force to fight against aliens, giants, and monsters, and other uh, beasties who wish to do harm to the Earth. Uh, There's no word, obviously, at this point if there's any fan subs or if Crunchyroll will pick up the series. Crunchyroll did air the teaser video, so if you go to Crunchyroll.com, you can find the teaser video for Ultraman X. Uh, X looks pretty cool. You can see kind of the modern design elements that we had both Ginga and Ginga S and Victory, although it does kind of look like this one's wearing headphones, which is kind of amusing in and of itself. Uh, More information on that as it develops. Keeping with the Ultraman news, on May the 10th, Chayo, which you may know is the Thai company that has long claimed to own Ultraman, had a press conference in Thai Town in Los Angeles. And uh, as I said, they've long held a position that they own the international distribution rights, and by international in this case we mean outside of Japan, to the first six Ultra TV series. Well, they had their press conference to officially announce Blu-ray releases of Ultra Q, Ultraman, Ultra 7, Return of Ultraman, which of course stars Ultraman Jack, Ultraman Ace, and Ultraman Taro, along with uh, Jumborg Ace. And now there's no prices, there's no dates, uh, but they did say that English dialogue was going to be added in addition to the subtitles. 
Uh, Chayo also announced two upcoming feature films, the first of which is Ultraman vs. Gamora at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which they say will be released in 2018, and then Jumborg Ace vs. Ninja Panda. No, I am not making that one up. Um, personally, I'm kind of torn over this. I would welcome Blu-ray releases of these shows with proper English subs and dubs, but I'm always a little bit leery about Chayo because of the kind of very twisted and tangled legal web between them and Subaraya dating back to the 1970s. Uh, the issue of the movies is a strange one also because my understanding of the current legal rulings was that Chayo cannot create or market any Ultraman of their own design or likeness in any original productions without Subaraya's approval. But, you know, who knows? I mean, it's international copyright law. There could be all sorts of loopholes. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so, like I said, I'm kind of torn. It would be neat to get these official releases. If I'm remembering correctly, that is how we did get both the Mill Creek release of Ultraman and then the Shout Factory release of Ultra Q and Ultra 7 was licensed through Chayo. So, if that's the case, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to buy them because I'm such a big fan. But, it, you know, it, it's, I guess it's the, uh, the vagaries of international law sometimes. But, you know, that, that's the way the, that these things go as a tokusatsu fan. And I'll just be interested to see if uh, we can get some proper uh, subtitles and dubs on these guys if they actually do materialize and get released here in the States. The Ultraman vs. Gamora at the 2020 Olympics movie sounds pretty neat. According to Chayo, it's going to be modern special effects, not necessarily man in suit, but one has to imagine there's going to be at least a couple of guys in suits at some point in uh, such a film. In uh, merchandise news from Diamond, uh, the NECA is releasing a 12-inch long Godzilla video game action figure. This is uh, a version of Godzilla that based on his appearance in the NES Godzilla Monster of Monsters game, which you may recall we covered on this show way back in episode 11. The figure stands 6 inches tall, has about 12 inches long, and his colored and sp and uh, base, like I said, is look on that old video game, including the way his dorsal fins look. Uh, SRP on this is $24.99. It's going to be in comic shops on July 29th. Usually NECA figures, including the video game figures, you can find at Toys R Us as well. I've seen their um, Predator figure, and they have a Jason Voorhees as well. And if this holds true to what NECA's done, it's going to be sold in a big oversized box that looks like the box art for the game. And if that's the case, I may have to pick this up, uh, just because I have so many fond memories of playing that, that ridiculous game when I was a kid with my cousin. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. Credit to Sci-Fi Japan for this news item. And lastly, in a bit of uh, depressing news, uh, Herb Trimpey passed away right as our last episode was going to release uh, back on um, April 13th of 2015 at age 75. Herb Trimpey was a legendary Marvel Comics artist, uh, did a lot of work on Incredible Hulk. To me, is probably the definitive Incredible Hulk artist, best known here on Earth Destruction Directive as the primary artist for both Marvel's Godzilla and Shogun Warriors comic. Uh, I've really enjoyed over the past year and a half or so of uh, seeing Trimpey's work every every issue of Shogun Warriors, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing his work on Godzilla, which we're going to pick up after Shogun Warriors um, completes its run. So, um, you know, my rest in peace, Mr. Trimpey, my condolences to his uh, family and friends. Um, you know, this guy was still active on the convention circuit and doing art right up until the end, and that's really something. So, uh, uh, you know, again, it's sad to see him go, but his art lives on forever, and we'll always... Uh, 
have those uh, memories and those uh, images that he helped create. And this episode of Earth Destruction Directive is dedicated to the memory of Herb Trimpey um, and his untimely passing. So, um, all that having been said, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to get into Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla here on Earth Destruction Directive. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Today we're going to be taking a look at Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1993, uh, also known as Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 in the U.S., and I just want to take a moment and say that I really dislike this title because it sets itself up as a sequel of sorts to Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster when it's not. Um, Toho really wants us to call this monster the Mechagodzilla 2 here in the U.S. I've never bought into that. It doesn't make any sense in the storyline. It only makes sense if you know that there was a Showa version of Mechagodzilla. I'm going to call it Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 93. That's what I've always called it. Anyway, uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla was released in Japan on December 11th, 1993. It first made its way to the States on home video from Sony in 1999, later released on DVD, and Blu-ray has never had a theatrical release here in the States. Our film was written by Wataru Mimura, music by Akira Ifukube, effects by Koichi Kawakita, directed by Takeo Okawara, produced by Tomoyuki Tanaka, and Shogo Tomiyama. In 1992, the United Nations establishes the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasures Center, UNGCC, to stop Godzilla. The remains of Mecha King Ghidorah are salvaged from the ocean and used to create two anti-Godzilla machines. The first is a flying gunship called the Garuda, the brainchild of Pteranodon-obsessed Kazuma. The second and more powerful machine is modeled after Godzilla himself and is called Mechagodzilla. Kazuma is surprised that he is transferred over to the military wing of the UNGCC, G-Force, where he is made, for some unknown reason, a member of the Mechagodzilla crew. Two years later, on a mission to Adona Island in the Bering Sea, a Japanese investigative team comes across what they assume is a large Pteranodon egg. The egg gives off a strange telepathic signal that attracts Godzilla and then the monster Rodan, an adult Pteranodon irradiated by the nuclear waste on the island. Both monsters appear and fight for the egg. During their battle, Godzilla critically wounds Rodan while the research team escapes with the egg. The egg is taken to a research center in Kyoto, where it imprints on a young female scientist named Azusa. When a baby Godzilla hatches from the egg, instead of a Pteranodon, 
The research team concludes that the egg was left in the pteranodon nest with Rodan, just as European cuckoo birds leave their eggs in the nests of other birds. Godzilla then appears in Japan, once again responding to the creature's psychic call. G-Force mobilizes Mechagodzilla, which intercepts Godzilla as he is making his way to Kyoto. The two battle, with Mechagodzilla seeming to have the upper hand, until Godzilla disables Mechagodzilla using his nuclear pulse. Godzilla continues searching for the baby Godzilla, but the scientists, having discovered the telepathic link between the monsters, shield it from him. Frustrated, Godzilla destroys most of Kyoto before returning to the ocean. Tests on the baby monster, now being called Baby, reveal that it has a second brain at the base of its spine that controls the animal's movement. The UNGCC assumes that this also holds true for Godzilla and, and decides to use Baby to bait Godzilla into a fight with the Mechagodzilla. Baby and Azusa are loaded into a cargo container and flown via helicopter to draw Godzilla out. The G-Crusher weapon is installed in Mechagodzilla's wrist, allowing the robot to penetrate Godzilla's hide and paralyze him by destroying the second brain. Additionally, everyone's favorite psychic, Mickey Saigusa, is added, added to the crew to help accurately locate Godzilla's second brain. The plan backfires, however, when Rodan, having survived his battle with Godzilla and been further mutated by the radiation, responds to Baby's call and intercepts the transport. Azusa and Baby are knocked about in the container, but survive. The UNGCC is forced to send Mechagodzilla and Garuda, now piloted by Kazuma, after Rodan, and in the ensuing battle, Rodan is mortally wounded. Godzilla shows up moments later and attacks Mechagodzilla. And while the two appear evenly matched, Mechagodzilla combines with Garuda, and this upgraded form, called Super Mechagodzilla, carries out the G-Crusher plan and succeeds in paralyzing Godzilla. Suddenly, the dying Rodan, once again revived by Baby's call, attempts to escape. Super Mechagodzilla shoots it down and Rodan lands on top of Godzilla. Rodan's life force travels from one monster to the other and regenerates Godzilla's second brain, supercharging him. Now more unstoppable than before, Godzilla attacks with all of his might and destroys Super Mechagodzilla with uh, the Red Spiral Atomic Ray. Godzilla finally locates Baby, who was at first afraid of the giant monster. Azusa says her goodbyes to Baby, and Mickey telepathically communicates with the monster, soothing his fears. Baby then accepts Godzilla as its father, and Godzilla and Baby head out to sea. Well, the action bits are good, but the story, it's pretty nonsensical this time out. Definitely a summer popcorn-style movie, despite being released in December, with absolutely all that that entails. Uh, a few notes here. It's, first off, right from the start, this has a great soundtrack. Uh, the Mechagodzilla gets a new theme. The Rodan theme, the classic Rodan theme, returns. Both are used very well. They're very welcome. Uh, the new MG theme is just bomb. You know, it's very kind of slow-paced and bombastic. It's suggesting a giant machine that's being used by the military. I really like it. And the Rodan theme was classic, so to hear it brought back and not, um, not mixed in with the Godzilla theme, but on its own, I think is a really nice touch. If Akube does a great job on this soundtrack. Right at the beginning of the film, we're getting two callbacks to previous Heisei films. Uh, the Heisei films of all the different series of Godzilla films over the years are the ones that have the best continuity film to film, other than the two Millennium Mechagodzilla films, which are connected to each other. Uh, but in the prologue, we hear, um, we both see and hear about Mecha King Ghidorah, the remains of which uh, lie at the bottom of the ocean after the fight at the end of Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. 
and artificial diamonds, which you'll recall were used to create the fire mirror in Godzilla vs. Biolanti. And these are both used as part of the uh, technology cribbed together to make the Mechagodzilla. The new Mechagodzilla design is more rounded, more sleek, more modern than the Showa design. It doesn't do much for me. I don't know. I guess I always just associate Mechagodzilla with the Showa design. I mean, he looks nice. I think the head's a little too small, but, you know, that's fine. But it, it never really, um, you know, as my wife likes to say, flip my skirt up. It's okay. It's it's very much a product of the, of the times. It's very much a 90s-style mecha. And I'm okay with it, but, you know, it doesn't do that much for me. It, it certainly is, is, it serves its purpose well, and it's menacing, but it doesn't have the oomph of either the Showa or the later Kiru Mechagodzilla designs. Rodan in this film is primarily handled as a puppet. I think there's a few um, small-scale miniature versions of him in a couple of shots, but primarily he's a puppet. And the puppet moves very quickly and effectively in this film, both uh, in flight as well as in combat. This is a much improved version of puppetry than what we got with Mothra and Batra in Godzilla vs. Mothra 92. Now, you may remember when I covered that film here on the podcast, I kind of, uh, you know, decried the use of the puppets in those sequences where the legs were static, the whole body looked static, and just the legs, excuse me, the wings flapping up and down. Here, Rodan looks much more animated, much more... Um, animalistic, you know, his, his head's always moving around, he, his eyes are always darting around. They, they did a really good job, I think, with Rodan on this, in that he looks sleek and fast and can move, but he, when he's tangling with Godzilla, it doesn't look like it's just the suit actor for the Godzilla rap, you know, shaking around a puppet. It really looks like they're interacting together, and he looks really good. So Rodan comes off very good in this. Uh, speaking of the fight, right at the beginning, we get um, Godzilla versus Rodan on Adona Island, and I love when Godzilla and Rodan fight because it brings me back to my childhood, watching Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, with the two of them fighting across the Japanese countryside for, it seems like, half the film. And it's a really good fight here. There, there's some silly bits here, the splashing of the water as Rodan is flying past um, Godzilla in the flybys when they're fighting. But there's some really nice bits, too, one bit that I always have liked is when um, Rodan has got Godzilla pinned down and he's pecking at him and uh, and he misses and he hits the rock and it shatters at the kind of force that is sold there of uh, that Rodan is attacking Godzilla with. Really neat scene. Mickey Segusa shows up uh, in the beginning of this film and then again at the end. She's here because she kind of has to be here. We need her here because, you know, okay, we need some rational reason that we can have a, uh, communicate psychically with the baby and, you know, do some of this stuff. And then, you know, it's, it's like, okay, you know, Mickey had been in all the others, so I guess she's here. I mean, considering how much, uh, the series has changed since, uh, Godzilla vs. Biolanti, she's fairly one of the more recognizable characters in the series at this point, so uh, it's okay having her there, and she'll continue to show up in the, uh, in the remaining Heisei films as well. Uh, you know, she, she doesn't have too much to do in this. The plot in this film is kind of loosey-goosey. There's a lot going on, but you're just not that interested in a lot of it. And Mickey being assigned to the G-Force team to pilot Mechagodzilla just seems wrong. She was used as a blockade, a psychic blockade in previous films to kind of push Godzilla away, but that was more of a defensive posture. Having her as part of a crew of a um, giant military robot doesn't really work for me, personally. 
Baby G is very adorable and very cute being played by uh, a full-size effect on screen. We get to see him eating flowers at one point. More on that in a minute. Uh, he would get substantially more cute next time out. <laughs> if anyone has seen Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, you know what's coming there with the little G. Uh, about the plant-eating aspect, I didn't go back and watch Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, but I don't remember Godzillasaurus as being herbivores. It wouldn't make sense for them to be an herbivore with the big teeth that they have. That would suggest a carnivore. I mean, he really looked like a Tyrannosaurus, you know, a smaller Tyrannosaurus with longer arms to me in the flashback scenes and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, but I guess according to now, or at least now is in 1993, Godzilla-sauruses were herbivores, so it's kind of a, a stretch to me. they got to make Baby cute and, and cuddly looking, but if he's a meat eater, they can't really do that. So, eh, let it slide. It just stands out as an odd, odd choice. In fact, that they, that they you know, even pointed out so much, like I said, by having him eat the roses when he first hatches. It seems to me that you could have just kind of glossed over it, and we would have just assumed he was a meat eater, and nobody would have cared, but, yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. Right before he gets launched for the first time, we get some really nice glamour shots of the Mechagodzilla. Talked about this a little bit, this sort of thing, on the episode of the where we covered the Mysterians, where we get to see these loving long shots of all the different uh, pieces of Mecha. In this case, all the uh, support staff and the gantries and the uh, you know ramps and walkways all around him as they're preparing him to launch. And then the long sequence of all that stuff being removed and then prepping the launch bay to launch him out. It's all very nice. It's really good. It showcases one of the film's best assets, which to me is the special effects. There are some suspect effects here and there, but overall I think the effects are a step up from the previous year's effort. And so the extra attention paid on them doesn't bother me in the least. It continues the summer blockbuster popcorn film um, concept of the film. So I'm totally on board with it. And these uh, sh loving shots of the Godzilla are really well executed. They also feature some amazing Japinglish take-off and <laughs> you know, uh, stuff like that during the command sequences. I always love these, especially on my old... Uh, I used to have these on VHS dubs off a Japanese Laserdisc, and the uh, subtitles would uh, drop off anytime they spoke Japinglish. So you better hope you understood it, because you didn't have any subs to help you out. Uh, this film also is very interesting. We get to see some uh, touristy sightseeing sites, almost travelogue-esque in a couple of sequences. Uh, we see the racing circuit at Suzuka, which is one of the, I believe, two different Formula One-style uh, racing circuits in Japan. Uh, Suzuka will be familiar to anyone who played uh, pretty much any Formula racing game from the 1990s. I know it best from Super Monaco GP for both my uh, Genesis and Game Gear. Uh, but later, Rodan flies over Chiba Marine Stadium, where the Chiba a lot Marines play in the uh, Pacific League baseball and Tokyo Disneyland. Now we've, we can clearly see Space Mountain and Cinderella Castle in Tokyo Disneyland as Grodan flies over it. I love this scene. It's so neat. It's, it's just a, a, a simple little effect of a Rodan puppet over the, this um, background plate shot of Tokyo Disneyland but it's really neat and uh, shout out to Scott Gardner and Scott Rifon over on Earning My Ears. I posted this image over in the Earning My Ears group over on Facebook and really just really just tickled me to see that. It would have been neat to see Rodan swoop down and destroy Tokyo Disneyland because, you know, hey, I've always wanted to see something like that, but it's not going to happen on a film of this style in this budget in the 90s anyway, but that, just really neat. 
The first battle between Godzilla and Mechagodzilla serves primarily as a showcase of Mechagodzilla's arsenal. He has the Mega Buster, which he fires from his eyes, and then the laser cannon, which is mounted in his mouth, the rockets coming out of uh, various parts, the wrist cables, which they send the, uh, the shocking electric current through, and then, of course, the plasma grenade, which is, up until this point, the most effective uh, you know, JSDF slash G-Force style weapon that we've seen in the series. It pretty much knocks Godzilla on his keister every single time. And it's mounted right in the uh, the chest, or in the gut, I should say, of Mechagodzilla. This would, um, this is kind of a future thing. We'd see a similar sort of design aesthetic with the chest-mounted weapons of the Kiru Mechagodzilla, the Absolute Zero Cannon, and then the Triple Mazer. But that comes much later. Um... We get a, a really interesting shot of a, a beam war, and I mean this very literally, as we get Godzilla using his atomic breath, and the Mechagodzilla using the Mega Buster, and the beams hit each other. Almost like we would see later in Godzilla Destroy All Monsters Melee and some of the other Godzilla games for that generation of video games where they hit, and then the, the Mega Buster just pushes, 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 and overpowers it. And of course, like I said, G gets knocked on his butt uh, by that and the spiral grenade. The uh, the use of the nuclear pulse to take out the Mechagodzilla with the shock cables, I really like it. I think it's a neat callback to the nuclear pulse attack like we saw in Godzilla vs. Biolanting, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. Just keeping in mind that, that Godzilla has that power set, and so maybe you don't want to be in constant contact with them, right? Uh, the next sequence in that fight is the uh, the assault from G-Force's ground troops, including the, the Mazer tanks, which is always nice to see Mazer tanks. Um, you know, especially here. The effects in this sequence, okay, I'll grant you that the setting being set out in the um, kind of the middle of nowhere in a kind of wooded area, a sparsely wooded area, is kind of a callback to me to the, the films of the late Showa era where it was cheaper to build those sorts of sets and city models, but it serves the purpose of the narrative. They're stopping Godzilla before he gets into Kyoto, so I can at least understand that. And beyond that, though, I think the effects in this sequence hold up really well. Even on Blu-ray, which is what I watched this on the, the recently released Blu-ray double feature. And I think they hold up really nicely. The, the you know, the Mechagodzilla looks good. Godzilla looks good. The, uh, the tanks and Mazers look really nice. I think everything really comes through nicely on this sequence. I think that it was clear that they knew, okay, our story is not, you know, is, is not really the bee's knees here. Let's put some more time and attention on the effects. And I think it shows up on the screen. And it's a really good sequence. I really like this. Um, after Godzilla gets through with the, uh, the G-Force attack, he goes into Kyoto. Very conveniently, we do see Godzilla destroy some stuff in Kyoto, but he avoids all the temples. <laughs> I remember reading back in the day in the, in the Kaiju Review fanzine that this was, uh, very purposefully done, that they would con be considered bad luck to have Godzilla knock down temples in, uh, Kyoto. So, he walks very gingerly around, <laughs> around those areas of the city. Towards the end of the film, we see Rodan become mutated into Fire Rodan. This has always been very unclear. It kind of just happens. We see Rodan laying prone on Adona Island, and we hear Baby's distress cry. And then Rodan kind of wakes up and starts flying, and then he's Fire Rodan. And it's like, okay, I'm not really sure how that works. Fire Rodan is cool. We do get, uh, finally, Rodan has a ranged weapon besides the Hurricane Strength Winds, the Uranium Heat Bream. And the red color is really kind of striking because it's not like a brick red. It is more of a red you might see in um, in nature. It looks almost like a phoenix motif. Almost as if they were suggesting that the defeated Rodan rose from the ashes like a phoenix. 
Hmm, perhaps? I don't know. Seems a little uh, straightforward, that's okay. This does lead into the very, very brutal fight of Fire Rodan versus the Mechagodzilla, where we see poor Rodan getting blasted through buildings by the MG. It's like he is outclassed, unfortunately, by this weapon. Now, Rodan, there's a reason why so many people love him, and it's because he is a classic Earth monster. He fights tooth and claw, and, you know, he gets by with his speed and his cunning, and, you know, but he is outmatched when it comes to the, the sheer you know, uh, technological might of the Mechagodzilla, and that is very clear in this sequence. The shot of him getting blasted through the buildings is harsh. It was harsh when I first saw it back in the 90s. To me, it's still harsh. Again, the effects, I think, really hold up in this sequence, and there are long sequences where we get to see a lot of different um, aspects to the fight. They're not quick cut, you know, so we, we get to see the ebb and flow sort of thing, although primarily Rodan's on the defensive in, the, in this particular battle. This, of course, leads directly into round two of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Godzilla throws the Mechagodzilla around in this sequence, which is funny because in the last one, the MG just stood back and blasted at him. Here, Godzilla gets up close and personal. One of the common criticisms of the Heisei Godzilla films is an emphasis on long-range combat and beam wars. I think that's a valid criticism. Here, though, they do kind of address it, and Godzilla gets in close, and that's where he has the advantage. The Garuda is very much like the Super X-2, I think. He puts up a good fight. Uh, they really love the flying tanks in the Heisei films, didn't they? Between the Super X, Super X-2, Garuda, and Super X-3. And when you consider that in the next film, Mogra splits into two different parts and one of them's a flying tank. You know, I, they really were going with that motif, and I'm cool with it. It gives them another another piece of mecha to sell toys of. And here we get the Gatai shift on as uh, the Garuda combines with the Mechagodzilla to form Super Mechagodzilla. Not a huge departure pretty still pretty much looks like Mechagodzilla with two cannons over his shoulders obviously a lot of people like this look because it would get recycled down the line to be the primary look of Kiru in the Millennium Godzilla films um, the uh, but I do like the Super Mechagodzilla it does give him a little bit of a differentiation versus uh, the the previous Mechagodzilla design uh, the building rubble in this sequence looks great. I mean, there's a lot of buildings getting smashed up when these guys are, are going back and forth here, and it really looks good, especially, again, in the Blu-ray, the sharpness of it. Each individual brick, it really looks good, and I really have to, again, to commend Toho for their effects work. Kawakita and his crew did a very good job on this film, and I, I've always liked the effects on this film, even if, as I said, the story kind of drags a little bit. There's always an effects uh, sequence not too far away that kind of keeps your interest. Uh, we get to see Godzilla's second brain getting attacked by the G-Crusher. This whole plot point always makes me think of a similar statement in Godzilla Raids Again, where they talk about how Anguirus has multiple brains to help control his body. I remember when I was a kid, this was a theory that you'd see in sometimes in dinosaur books about like Stegosaurus or other large herbivorous uh, dinosaurs like that, that they might have a second brain at the base of their spine. So, you know, it's just some some grounding in pseudoscience is always fun. And again, that was a callback to, you know, a classic show. It was kind of amusing. Anyway, the G-Crusher itself, to me, is really disappointing because it looks exactly the same as the shock cables that was used in the first fight. They don't even make them look different or bigger or make the effect look different. All that it looks like they're doing is just targeting the brain with him instead of putting him in his shoulders. You know, when they did the, uh, the Godzilla grip in Godzilla's King Ghidra, they had the shock cables and then they had the big claw that came out. So I was really expecting the first time I saw this something a little more impressive for the G. 
G-Crusher attack. You know, that it, it ends up working is, is cool, and that, uh, you know, and all that, but it to me it's always been a little disappointing that there wasn't another more visually arresting aspect to this super weapon that the uh, the Mechagodzilla has. Although, frankly, I don't know why they, they, they hit him with the G-Crusher and then they just stand there. Plasma grenade. Use the plasma grenade right there and that's the end of it. But, you know, then we wouldn't have our hero make his big comeback. Speaking of which, the big comeback, of course, Rodan's sacrifice when he lands on him and lets the life energy in the form of glitter because all monster life energy is glitter, uh, flow into Godzilla. The soundtrack here is amazing. This mournful dirge version of the Rodan theme is beautiful, and I absolutely love it. And Rodan here making the sacrifice to two Earth monsters again. And even though Mechagodzilla is not a space monster anymore, you know, it, it's the idea of the Earth monsters versus the power of man. And it's again kind of Earth, you know, the Earth, the planet versus mankind, and I and I like that, and I like that the two Earth monsters again, even as uh, Rodan, you know, breathes his last, he's there to help the fellow Earth monster and Godzilla. So I thought that was really neat. Of course, the uh, the result of this is the debut of the Red Spiral Beam attack, which is so cool and uh, would just lead to so many cool, many cooler moments down the road as well. But you know Godzilla's pissed off when that beam goes from blue to red, you know, which is kind of backwards when you think about the scale of fire because red is red fire is not as hot as blue fire, but it's just visually the the you know the idea of red being the color of rage and Godzilla is just pissed off at this point and just lays into. Mechagodzilla with the, the red spiral beam. Really neat. And actually then seeing the Mechagodzilla on fire to me is a really cool effect because we had seen Mechagodzilla torn apart and blasted to bits before in the show of films, but never actually burning on fire. I thought it was a great look and just, uh, you know, really added to the drama of the scene to have this, this fire, this basic fire effect. And just really, you're cheering for Godzilla the whole time after Rodan goes down. You just want to see the MG get his, and he totally does here in this sequence. It's just really, a really nice finale. Um, after Mechagodzilla is defeated, Godzilla and Baby are brought together. Baby cries with Azusa. That's a little suspect. I don't think reptiles can cry. I don't think that works that way. Uh, again, at this point, we're going to just let that slide. Um, the sequence does kind of also point out that, you know, we haven't really been interested in the human side of this. So, you know, Kazuma and Asusa's, uh, relationship and, you know, Azusa's um, connection with Baby and Mickey kind of pushing the two monsters together, it kind of just plays out. It's like, okay, yeah, we, we know what the ending's going to be here. And, uh, we just want to, you know, we're just, we're just here because that's the end of the film. It does, like I said, story-wise, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. I know I keep repeating myself with that, but it bears repeating is that, this is a film where it's, you know, the, the story is not very good. It's a fairly lame human plot overall, as far as I'm concerned. But it's enjoyable to watch because the monster stuff is done so well. And really, it's a step up over the last film in that we're not trying to cram two different stories together here. Where it's like, okay, we're going to retell Mothra, but we're also going to retell parts of Godzilla versus the thing. And we gotta have Godzilla in here because he's the lead star, and we gotta introduce this new monster. Whereas here, we do introduce a new monster, two new monsters, insofar as Mechagodzilla and Rodan. But Mechagodzilla exists primarily as a roadblock. He doesn't have a character per se, and Rodan is really only in the film for two sequences. So, you know, he, he's he's not as prevalent as Batra was in the last film, and Rodan's motivations are very straightforward. 
And so the focus goes back on Godzilla the, this time out, rather than being more on the supporting cast like it was last time. I think the film is better for it. Again, the story is not super engaging. Kazuma's whole thing with his love of pteranodons, and he builds a little pteranodon flyer, and him and Azusa, I never buy him and Azusa having any type of chemistry because they really don't. You know, Azusa has better chemistry with Baby than she does with, Kazu- with Kazuma. And that's okay. I, I don't need my human plots to be, you know, groundbreaking. I just need them to be keep my interest enough until we get on to the next sequence. And that's maybe that's kind of damning it with faint praise, but that's that was the feeling I got watching it. Um, it's fun and exciting. Uh, the effects are, for the most part, a step up over the last installment. It's definitely worth checking out. This one's a really good romp. There's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of action, so it's a lot of fun to watch, especially if you get a room full of guys or gals together uh, that want to see some monsters smash it up. Uh, so this film is available on DVD and recently re-released on Blu-ray. If you can, I would recommend getting the Blu-ray over the DVD. Nor, and the reason for this is that first off, the film in Blu-ray is in widescreen. The DVD is in full screen. Also, the Blu-ray is uh, does restore the Japanese language track with English subtitles rather than uh, only having the dub like the DVD does. So you have at least more options. Uh, the Blu-ray is on a double feature with Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. So you get two Heisai films for uh, for your purchase right there. Um, like I said, it's definitely worth checking out. I know uh, Mecha fans will like this one. There's, a, like I said, a lot of nice uh, shots of both the Mecha Godzilla and the Garuda, and some really nice effects. I think fans of Rodan will really dig this one too. And overall, it's good. It's it's not great, but it is good, and it's to me, it's one of the more enjoyable ones of the Heisai films to watch. I, I had a grin on my face when it's the entire time. My mind might wander a little bit in the human segments. But overall, I enjoyed it, and it was fun revisiting this film that I had not watched in a few years. So definitely check it out. Uh, you can, of course, pick this up uh, via Amazon.com by using the 2 True Freaks link at 2TrueFreaks.com and, uh, and give it a watch. I think uh, anyone who likes watching Godzilla fight a giant robot, and if you're listening to this show, you probably do, will get a kick out of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Oh, just a note, as I said, this is in fact called Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 on that Blu-ray release as well. So just be aware of that. Again, doesn't make any sense in the in the plot because this is in fact the first Mechagodzilla that they build. <laughs> so the, the name is really just for localization purposes and to differentiate it from Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster, which uh, has dropped out of favor as the U.S. title for the original Mechagodzilla film instead of uh, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. So I think this is mostly done for Toho and Sony to differentiate the two films in the U.S. market. So don't be confused by it. Just look for the one released in 1993. It's got Rodan and Godzilla and Mechagodzilla on the cover. That'll be the one that you want to get if you want to get this film. Both films are recommended, mind you. We covered Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster a a while back, I want to say like episode 7 or so of Earth Destruction Directive, we took a look at that one, so if you want to go back and check that episode out, but uh, yeah, so Godzilla fighting a giant robot version of himself. Sounds pretty good to me, right? So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge evil. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to take a look at Shogun Warriors number 18. Shogun Warriors number 18 was released by the Marvel Comics Group. It is cover dated July 1980, released on or about April 1st, 1980, per Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch, our penciler, Herb Trimpey. Inker is Mike Esposito, letterer, Mark Rogan. Colorist, Carl Gafford. Editor, Louise Simonson. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. And our title is The Chaos Wars. Off the coast of Madagascar, Ilongo Savage is piloting Dangard Ace to the undersea grotto he has prepared for him when he runs across an illegal Soviet whaling ship. Savage pokes a hole in the ship's hull with Ace's finger, sending the commies fleeing. Arriving in the grotto, he is then met by Judith, who had followed him. Meanwhile, a strange alien force, the Primal One, begins to work its machinations, telling its drones to begin the operation to capture or destroy Dangard Ace. Just as the two lovers head to the surface and discuss this crazy mixed-up world they live in, a gigantic alien craft blocks out the moon and attacks. Telling Judith to bunker down at the Institute, Savage hops back into Dangard Ace and attacks, but the massive craft is not concerned with his weapons and dives down under the sea. It resurfaces, but now the craft has an ocean liner stuck on its back. As Dangard lands on the craft to attempt to save the liner, a large compartment door slides open, and the massive humanoid machine called Megatron steps out. Towering over Dangard Ace, Savage realizes he is in over his head. Without the pendants to contact his fellow Shogun pilots, he resorts to the Shogun communication screens and hopes that Carson or Genji hear the message in time. In Los Angeles, Carson and Genji are busy looking over the remains of one of the men in black who attacked them and stole the pendants. Not making any headway, they decide to disable Rydeen's shimmer tube to avoid any accidental problems like they had with Combatra previous issue. But once inside, Carson sees Savage's message and blasts off for Madagascar. The two shoguns push the attack, but cannot do much besides annoy Megatron. After taking a beating, the two pilots work out a simple strategy. Rydeen rushes Megatron, who stumbles backwards over Dangard Ace, and falls into the ocean where he sinks to the bottom. The alien craft pulls out, giving no indication of its plans. The Shoguns regroup in L.A. and decide that they need to meet this threat head-on. They decide to head for Manhattan to warn Reed Richards. While deep in space, the Primal One is pleased, for now they can easily destroy all three Shoguns, as well as Reed Richards. Next, The Giant of New York, guest-starring the fabulous Fantastic Four. Ooh, definitely an action-heavy issue this time. Uh, you know, not pretty much non-stop uh, action in this one. It's it's not real long. You know, Marvel Comics of this era uh, kind of had their page counts truncated a little bit, but but Mensch and Trimpy and Company make really good use of every page they have available and turn in an enjoyable, action-packed 
book right here. Let's take a look first at the cover. Uh, the cover features, um, we've got Megatron stomping his giant foot right at the reader. Uh, great use of perspective once again. Megatron towers over the Shoguns, who themselves tower over the people on the deck of the uh, the, the ship. Um, Trimpy's name is hidden on the lifeboat. I thought that was a nice touch, a way to sign the piece without making it look obvious. Uh, the dynamism of the action is fantastic. You see Megatron stomping forward, the people scrambling and falling down as they run away. Dangard Ace lunging, firing his uh, finger blasts, and Rydeen charging up behind them. Really a very good cover. Good use of color, too, because... Uh, Megatron is a golden yellow, and he's got some orange and red highlights on him, but it, it, it pops off, you know, between that and the red highlight color on the on the logo, the Shogun Warriors logo. It really pops. It's a very bright, eye-catching cover. I really like it. Uh, turning over now to the splash page, uh, which shows Dangard Ace swimming under the sea with a bunch of whales, a pod of whales, I guess I should say. Kind of a weird angle here on Dangard Ace. We're looking kind of down at him at a at a I don't know I guess a 45 degree angle his legs don't look right they look like they're I don't know they look like they're too short they're not foreshortened right it is a neat setting though among the the whales I don't think we've had anything really all that similar to this we've had splash pages open up with um, the Shoguns in water before I remember the one where they came back to earth and landed in I think San Francisco Harbor but uh, it's a neat, it's a neat shot, and it does set it up. And the whales look really nice too. We got a couple of dolphins swimming around as well, appropriate for the you know marine biologist of the crew, Savage, to be swimming around here. Turning over to page two, panel five, uh, Dangard punctures the ship and sentences everyone inside to a watery grave. Comics code approved, everybody. No, seriously. I mean, he does. He just reaches up because scrunch is the uh, sound effect as he pokes a hole, and then they. Um, they do show the, the Soviets saying, A breach in the hull, turn for nearest land, but we cannot. It would be proof that we have violated the territorial treaty. Would you rather sink, fool, turn for land? But frankly, the, the, the speed with which they show the water pouring into the ship in the next panel, there's no way any of these guys survived. <laughs> he, he just pretty much sent them all to Davy Jones's locker with just a little flick of his giant Shogun warrior finger. I just thought it was funny. But again, you know, this 1980. We're not killing communists. You know, what are we doing here, honestly? Over on page three, panel three, we get our first look at the primal one. And the primal one here is kind of a, a very abstract representation of an alien. Basically, it's four triangles. Uh, the two in the middle are the larger ones that look kind of like uh, the up-down buttons you might see on an elevator. And then they're flanked on either side by two triangles that are pointing at each other. And these are colored yellow, and then around them is a series of black Kirby crackle. It definitely looks alien. It looks like, uh, you know, they call it the primal one. We don't get any real indication of its nature, whether it's a living organism, an organic being, a mechanical being, but definitely alien. And I really do like it because it's not just a green bug-eyed alien or something like that. It's really something that is non-humanoid and inscrutable. So I think that's pretty neat. Uh, it's what we get here. Turning over now to page seven, uh, just a great page in general. The, the top, there are four panels running across the top third of the page, and it shows the progression as the alien craft blots out the moon. That's how large it is. And then uh, is a, they, they fire off this big blinding burst of light, and we see uh, Savage and Judith in very harsh, only yellow color, and then black inks. It's very nice. And then the bottom half of the page, panels four through seven, gives us a really nice um, 
again, a nice mix of the harsh colors from Carl Gafford and the stark inking from Mike Esposito to really sell this uh, sequence. And the it looks almost cinematic with the use of light and shadow. Uh, panel six here, as um, as Judith and Savage are running away, and the uh, the craft is shooting at them with the very neat automatopoeia of Zior. Zior sounds like. Uh, that sounds a little bit like the, one of the sound effects from the old game Mega, uh, Mega Mania, if anybody remembers that for the old Atari 2600. It's the one where you shot, you were a spaceship and you shot dice and hamburgers and tires and if anybody remembers that game or it's just me. Anywho, but again, yeah, the, the lighting and, and shadow here is very cinematic. It's very, very nice. It's a nice little sequence. There's not a whole lot going on, just them running away from the ship, but it really looks dramatic and I really liked it. On page 11, panel 1, we see Dangard Ace flying up to... Uh, attack the craft and again great use of perspective this reminds me a bit of what Trimpy did with perspective in the uh, issues where we saw Dr. Demonicus's uh, moon base showing how massive something else is by making the Shogun warrior very small and here Dangard looks very very small compared to this craft so I thought that was a, a good use you know uh, again and I've talked about this before in this series where size is such an important uh, element because we're not dealing with regularly sized uh, hero characters for lack of a better term we've got our pilots but then the robots are giant and the monsters they fight are themselves giant and sometimes you get things like this which are even more titanic it, it's good to keep everything in perspective and helps the reader understand the, the scale of everything involved. I think Trimpy and Esposito and uh, and even Gafford here, because again everything's based in this harsh yellow light to to show the the um, you know that this unworldly light that it's giving off gives it a very alien feel. But they do a real good job of portraying all these you know substantially larger than life items that uh, that interact with the Shoguns. Turning over now to page 14, panel 1. This is where the craft comes up out of the ocean with the liner on its back. This is a great, great panel. Again, showing the... Um the, the scale of everything, having this ocean liner very easily be trapped on the back of this ship. And it looks, uh, I mean, again, very dynamic with the water streaming off of the uh, off of the liner, uh, roiling around the craft as it rises up. Again, we see the spot, the, the bright spotlights uh, coming off the craft. Really just a nice panel. This page itself has an interesting kind of layout. Panels one and two are both... Um, irregular trapezoids and then panel three sits underneath them and is is a and is a pentagon with the tip of the pentagon coming right up to the border between panels one and two so very neat uh layout then further on down the page on panel five dengard is all sorts of messed up here as the craft opens fire with boom 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 with three laser blasts and i mean his limbs are all akimbo and kind of all going in different directions but in this sense it in this case, it makes sense because he's being shot from three different directions. So you could assume that the impact of these powerful blasters coming from three different directions would rock uh, Dangard Ace's body in multiple directions. So I think that was a, a, a good a good use of uh, momentum showing the, uh, the, the attack there. Page 15, panel 1, after being shot, Dangard Ace falls face first into the deck of the craft with a simple wham. It, it's simple but effective. You know, his, his arms are just spread out to the side and he lands face first. It's just, ouch, you know that's got to hurt. Lower on down on page 15, 
Uh, man, I tell you what, it's a good thing that Dina's not here to see uh, Genji and Carson tearing apart this man in black, because you know she'd probably freak out that Carson was spending time with his fellow Shogun pilot, that cute Genji, once again. Oh, he never, he never offers to tear apart android robots with me, you know. As long as she doesn't have her shotgun, I think we're okay with her. Um, also, it's interesting, they do, in fact, make mention of Enrique from the last issue. So even though it was kind of a standalone story, it wasn't a fill-in. It was something that was involved with the overall plot, and it is, in fact, the plot device to get uh, Carson into writing to see Savage's um, distress call. So good, good use there of Mench to have a call to the previous issue. All right, page 17 is a second full-page splash, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the money shot of the issue with Megatron, this giant, gleaming, golden machine, stomping his way out of the craft, and his it, he's stepping up out of the hole, and his leg from his foot to his knee, it comes up to Dangard Ace's shoulders. This thing is huge, and he looks ready to tear him apart, and we get in the foreground all of the people on the liners as they're trying to scramble into the lifeboats. They're all freaking out. One guy's yelling, it's got I gotta be dreaming. And the other guy says, this ain't no dream, it's a bloody nightmare. And um, one of the kids yells, mommy, look, they're fighting like on TV. And the mother yells, get back, Timmy. And uh, uh, Mavis, hand me the camera. If I don't get a shot of this, they'll never believe us in Seattle. And the other guy says, why is all this happening here? This isn't even the Bermuda Triangle. So everyone is, uh, you know, they've got their wits about them fairly well, considering that a gigantic robot and an even more immense robot are about to throw down on the deck of this ship. But this is a great, great page. And, uh, man, you want to talk about something that just sells the idea of how big Megatron is. This page is awesome. And you know it's on now. Turning over now to page 19, panel 1, Megatron lays into uh, Dangard Ace with a haymaker, and the sound effect is simply cram! And uh, that's that's some metal-on-metal metal action right there. When uh, I mean, it is just a straight-up right hook that he just levels Dangard Ace with, and then, then we see Savage getting tossed around like a ragdoll inside the cockpit. It's, a gr it's just a great panel here, and it really, again, puts over the, the strength of the characters involved. Pages 22 through 30, it's just really good sequence here, excellent storytelling. It's just straight giant robots versus even gianter robot action. Trimpy, as I said, he, he, he's, he's in his element here, showing robots fighting robots, just like, you know, robots, it's, it's monsters and or robots fighting each other, was always Trimpy's strong suit, and it, he's really... It demonstrates it here. This is a wonderful, wonderful uh, series of pages. It's the real back and forth uh, of the fight as the Shoguns try different things and Megatron just kind of shrugs them off. There's some really good sound effects through here. We get two boom at one point when Megatron actually combines his hands together into a cannon. Um, we get uh, Dangard Ace firing his uh, rocket fist with a boosh and it bouncing off of Megatron with shoo-tuk. And then finally, the uh, the schoolboy that defeats him is splim as he falls down into the uh, in, into the ocean. Um, it's it's really just a, a good sequence, and you know that's that's been the strength of this book has been the action sequences of this title in general, not just this particular example. But this this issue really shines from that perspective, and it's a solid solid uh, action sequence here to finish up the book. 
couple of oddball Transformers notes besides the name Megatron. We also, as I said, do get to see him using a powerful hand-mounted laser cannon. Uh, unfortunately, and at no point is he described as whirling around like some giant predatory bird, nor does he say, it's over, finished, which would have strengthened those Transformer connections. All told, action-packed issue, much appreciated after the lower key one last time with the kid getting stuck in um, Combatra's uh, cockpit. Uh, if the, I tell you what, we're, we're in the home stretch here. We've only got two more issues of Shogun Warriors and then the kind of epilogue to the series over in Fantastic Four. But if the last few issues of this title are this jam-packed with super robot hijinks, I think we are in for a real treat. I know I am very much looking forward to reading them, especially after reading this one. So I hope you guys are digging this as much as I am. Uh, real quick, take a look at some ads. Inside front cover is The Saga of Johnny West wearing his Acme boots to keep an eye out for kids in trouble. So remember, if you're getting bullied by red-haired guys who look not dissimilar to Red Herring from the a pup named Scooby-Doo, just wear some big cowboy boots and a uh, neck scarf, and they will leave you alone because ain't nobody going to mess with a man wearing Acme boots. That's just fact. Uh, we got the Camp Cook Kit from Whoppers. We've seen that one a few times. Uh, we got a, a subscription ad with a really interesting mix of characters. We've got left to right here, and, and, and it's interesting, this, this is a page. It takes up a full page, but it runs landscape style. So you actually got to turn your book sideways to read the ad here. We've got the Incredible Hulk. We've got Howard the Duck. Uh, the guy from Crazy, whose name I don't remember. Um, Conan the Barbarian. A girl who is completely naked except for a sash that says Ms. Preview, so I guess she is the mascot of Marvel Preview. I mean, her her long hair is thankfully covering her naughty bits along with the, uh, the sash that's covering her upper naughty bits. And Conan is grabbing her by the bicep, so I don't know if he's taking her to have his way with her or whatnot. But on the other side of her, she is then flanked by Dracula. And it says, Wanted for excitement, action, thrills, and laughs. And uh, just a weird group of, uh, of characters all mixed together. And the, the titles are all being advertised down below. Crazy, Howard the Duck, Marvel Preview, Savage Sword of Conan, The Hulk, Tuma Dracula. Just an odd collection right there. I don't have ever seen this ad before. Very strange indeed. Ah, this one I like. These NPC models can turn your room into the Black Hole. And uh, from the now from the great Disney movie, The Black Hole, directly to your room. And it's model kits of Maximilian, Vincent, and the Cygnus. What I like here is that they show everything swirling into the black hole, including the kid on his bed, his chest of drawers, and his pajamas. So it's like apparently if you buy these, you can turn, uh, uh, you know, make an event horizon in your very own living room. Very neat. And the NPC models of these are actually quite nice. Let's see, flipping forward a few pages. Oh, we get the full-page house ad for Rom Space Knight. We've seen this one before as well. Appropriate. Uh, we get the uh, Marvel Comics uh, subscription page, the saving certificate with Hulk and Spider-Man. Um, then we get the Fun and Games magazine. What do the Marvel superheroes really talk about in the midst of battle? And we see Tarantula fighting Spider-Man. Dr. Doom fighting Reed Richards, and we're all talking about Fun and Games Magazine. I don't have Fun and Games Magazine, but I do have... I, I don't know if it's a collection of that, or it's it's a, a might, it's like the Mighty Marvel Puzzle and Ga Fun and Games book. And it's like two inches thick. It's got a white cover, and it's got all puzzles and games and stuff. And it had that since my brother and I were kids. And we get the HodgePodge ad, the movie projector with the groovy movie of the girl being projected... Um, let's see, we got bullpen bulletins with the house at the bottoms for Machine Man and the Man-Thing. 
Uh, let's see. Well, we do have a uh, Hostess Fruit Pies ad starring The Thing in Sunday Punch. A quiet Sunday. Or is it? Sheesh. I go out for some goodies and look what I run into. I am programmed to destroy. Not me, you ain't. Oof. My Sunday Punch ain't doing much. You will not stop me. I'll just have to get serious. But I gotta get these rubber neckers to safety first. But how? Got it! A surefire attraction! Hey, Hostess Fruit Pies! Real fruit filling. Apple, cherry, peach! Light, tender, crust, wow! They'll be so busy eating they'll stay out of my way. Walk! Crunch! Stop! Ain't nothing left of that guy but a ton of bricks. But there ain't nothing left of the Hostess Fruit Pies for me either. Yeah, you win one, you lose one. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. Now, I like this one. One, because it, it the thing doesn't use the Fruit Pies to directly defeat the bad guy, which I really like. He just uses them to just keep the crowd occupied so he can go to town and beat up this giant... Um, it looks like a masonry-made robot. I don't know what his deal is. So that one's really cool. I also like that in, in typical Ben Grimm fashion at the end of the day, he ends up not having any fruit pies. He loses out, even though he saved the day. So very, very Marvel little uh, hostess fruit pie ad here. This one's really cool. And then finally, we get the Warrior Dispatch page with uh, Marvel's most mind-boggling hero. Once again, another Man-Thing ad. And then um, Daisy840. On the inside front cover, and then Sales Leadership Club on the back. Nothing we haven't seen before on those. Uh, good issue. I really enjoyed this one. It's a, it's a fast read, just because, like I said, it's only, I think, about 18 pages. but And it's a lot of action. Really enjoyable, really fun. Just slam-bang robots fighting robots. What more could you ask for from a Shogun Warriors comic? So, I'm really, I really like this one. Really very much looking forward to seeing 19 and 20, even though I know the series is coming to a close. If they're as good as this, I think I'm going to have fun with them. So, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Hey, kids. Do you like comics? Uh-huh. Do you like Iron Man comics? Uh-huh. Do you want to learn more about Iron Man's downward spiral from alcoholism, fear of commitment, and feelings of inferiority leading the egomaniac into a life of misery? Uh, what? Then listen to the Invincible Ironcast Classics Edition and see Tony Stark go from genius billionaire playboy philanthropist to genius billionaire playboy philanthropist with awesome weaponized armor. Relive classic stories like Demon in a Bottle, Armor Wars, Doom Quest, and more. Hosted by me, Mike Staley. So how about it, kids? Do you want to listen to the Invincible Iron Cast? Uh-huh. Well, too bad. You need to do your homework. Uh-huh. The Invincible Iron Cast Classics Edition. On iTunes or at invincibleironcast.podbean.com. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time for a lot of people's favorite part of the show, and it's time for some listener feedback. And I hold a nice stack of email in my hands. Yes, I actually do print the emails out and read them on paper. I don't do them out of a browser, and this is not a fake piece of paper. This is actually the emails. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. This address is also repeated in the outro for the show, so let's get right into it. Our first email comes from Brian Hughes, and I believe Brian is a first 
first-time emailer, and Brian's subject is not spam, Red Ronin. Brian writes, Hello, Luke. You had mentioned the appearance of Red Ronin in the Avengers comics recently. I had read that issue just a few months ago, and there was an offhand comment by Captain America that struck me. Cap had said that Red Ronin... Cap had said that Red Ronin was built to fight Godzilla, confirming to me that Godzilla was a part of the Marvel Universe. So, had the Avengers or any other well-known Marvel characters ever come into contact with Godzilla or any other well-known kaiju? Of course, it would have been great to see Godzilla drawn by George Perez back during that run, but oh well. I really enjoy the show, and I am, yeah, I am right now listening to your episode on the Mysterians which I had bought to watch with my son, who loves kaiju movies. Our favorite that we watch at least once a year is War of the Gargantuas. On the Mysterians, we have not sat down to watch it yet. I am waiting for my son to get past his legendary Godzilla fixation. He watches that every couple of days right now, and will be a few weeks before something else will get his attention. I understand that the Mysterians had one of the earliest appearances of the Mazer Cannon, so I'm interested to see that, though I am sure it was not as effective as it was against Gyra. Anyway, thanks for the show. You keep recording. I'll keep listening. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Brian, first off, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, To take your your points in order here, uh, we will see that Godzilla does, in fact, interact with the Marvel Universe, S.H.I.E.L.D. especially, including um, uh, Dum Dum Duggan, Gabe Jones, and and I want to say in the Marvel Godzilla series, he also interacts with the Champions. Uh, so whether you consider the champions to be well-known heroes in, in the Marvel Universe, that's, you know, that's up to you. That's personal decision. Uh, but yeah, so Godzilla was well-established as being part of the Marvel Universe. None of the other Toho uh, pantheon of monsters appear in the Marvel Godzilla comic. This is, of course, due to the way that Toho handles licensing their monsters. So that you could get, you know, each one is an additional fee that you want to license. Um, so, and, and Godzilla would go on to be basically genetically modified if i'm remembering the story right in the pages of iron man by dr demonicus and grow a horn and basically it was the same monster but they couldn't call him godzilla so the marvel godzilla is very much a part of the uh, marvel universe they just don't they just don't reference them or they make it reference in kind of cutesy ways in uh the first issue of mighty avengers of the first relaunch of Mighty Avengers when Brian Michael Bendis was writing it, and mm, for the life of me, I cannot remember who the artist was, but the storyline involved the Mole Man invading Manhattan with an army of monsters, and the Heisai Godzilla is hidden amongst the uh, monsters in the big splash page of them all bursting out of the earth, and this was done from what I understand, intentionally as an homage to uh, Godzilla's history with Marvel Comics. So, uh, As far as you and your son watching War of the Gargantuas, hey man, go for it. War of the Gargantuas was a favorite of my brother and I's when we were kids, it still is. Of all the films scheduled to be covered here in Earth's Destruction Directive, I have had more people ask to guest star on War of the Gargantuas than any other film combined. <laughs> so you are in good company, I assure you, uh, by you and your subs, uh, you and your son's love of War of the Gargantuas. Uh, as far as your son's legendary Godzilla fixation, again, hey, way to go, good job, man. I uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the Mysterians if you had a chance to watch it, and you can see that the Mark Light Cannon is sort of the uh, um, predecessor to what would eventually be the uh, the Mazer Tank. Uh, but all the mecha in there, man, just so uh, just so much fun, isn't it? Uh, anyway, I'll keep recording them, so please keep listening. I appreciate your email, Brian. Thank you very much. 
Our next email comes from our man in Texas, Mr. Timothy Elliott, and the subject is Earth Destruction Directive Number 37 or High Collar Caps and Foster Grants. Tim writes, Greetings, Luke. Great show on the Mysterians. I really enjoyed your coverage of the film, and I re-watched it after listening to your podcast to refresh my memory. Unlike other Honda films, I have only seen the Mysterians a few times. I agree the model work and other FX are excellent, as is Ifakube's score. I only have the English dub. Do you own the Japanese with subtitles? If so, how does the English dub hold up to the subs? The film almost works as a special effects demo reel for Subaraya. Uh, just to, to jump in here, the bootleg I have is uh, Japanese with uh, English subtitles. I, from what I understand, the dub is fairly close. There's not a whole lot of really detailed plot points in the Mysterians. It's fairly basic, so my understanding is that you're you're fine with either the dub or the sub. Um, I, I believe the dubbed version does eliminate some of the people repeating the same things uh, at the UN scenes that take place in the second half, so it may almost be preferable. Getting back into Tim's email, how did the three guys that go off fight the fire in the beginning actually think they could extinguish a forest fire? Did Shirashi suspect the Mysterians were behind the fire and hope to make contact, or was his disappearance during the disaster just a coincidence? Tim, the world may never know. I think the guys run off to fight the fires because, you know, first off, it's my two favorite words, plot contrivance, but also because, you know, in a panic, you think, oh, we'll go take care of it. You, you don't always plan. You just kind of run off and do stuff. As far as Shirashi, his disappearance at the beginning is always, it's, it's kind of odd. It's never really explained, but it goes, I think, towards the... Um, building him up as this kind of character that we weren't sure of his motivations at the beginning. You know, he he had seemingly been a normal guy, and then he became so obsessed with his work, and he started pushing away the world. So it, it is kind of a, a mystery. Now, I think what, what you've postulated here may be thinking more about it than the writers were, to be completely honest. I think you may have come up with something a little more in-depth than what the writers were thinking at the time. But uh, but I, I can see where you're, where, the, where you're coming from with that. Getting back into the email, I found a lot of similarity between the Mysterians and Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Both films involve an alien invasion being thwarted through an invention that preys on one of the alien's weaknesses. The anti-magnetic weapon developed in Earth versus the Flying Saucers is similar in the Mark Light Cannon or the A-Cycle Light Ray from Invasion of Astro Monsters. This is a common theme in sci-fi films, using Earth ingenuity to turn the tables on the aliens or... Look what I just happen to be working on. This worked great to stop the invaders. I'd also like to point out, besides the A-Cycle light ray, um, the inventors really, really loud, obnoxious sound from uh, Machine from Monster Zero or Invasion of the Astro Monster. Hey, will this thing make a loud noise? It'll shake your teeth loose. I like the design of Mogra. He did seem a little clumsy, but as the first mechanized kaiju, he's entitled to a pass. His march through that countryside using his heat ray reminded me of the tripods from War of the Worlds, as did the Mysterian's dome rising from the ground and blasting the JSDF with its heat ray. Very similar to the way Wells described the Martian cylinders projecting their heat ray from the sand pit. The forked antenna on the Mysterian's helmets looked like the Inhuman Black Bolt's antenna. You know, I never made that connection, but you're right. Just kind of had that antenna in the middle of the head thing. And totally on board with you about the War of the Worlds connections. Um, I think a lot of these films all kind of inform each other, and they form a nice little uh, subgenre of these alien invasion films from that era. Tim concludes, Enough of my rambling observations. Another great show, Luke, and I look forward to more city-smashing fun. I just obtained the run of Shogun Warriors, so I'll be able to follow as you finish the series. Chim, 
as you finish the series. Cheers, Tim Elliott, Texas. P.S. I noticed some MST3K references in your comments on Earth Destruction Directive and other shows. Are you a fan? I hold as one of my proudest geek moments when, at an MST3K convention in St. Lu- in St. Louise? St. Louis, Texas? Okay. I sat in the hotel bar and drank beer with Michael J. Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett. We drank the bar out of Heineken. Bravo, sir. Well played, Tim. Well played. Uh, no doubt if you've listened to our Green Slime episode, you know I am a huge fan of Mystery Science Theater 3000, going back to literally the first season on Comedy Central when I first watched the episode for The Crawling Hand and became hooked. Uh, I love Mystery Science Theater 3000, so does my brother. It's been a big part of, uh, of our childhoods and even into our adulthoods. And uh, I was lucky enough that when I went to college, I met up with some guys who also loved Misty uh, during its run on sci-fi, and that became part of our Saturday morning routine of taping misty in saturday morning and then watching it saturday afternoon and evening um tim i I really appreciate your email tim elliott is a a great guy i know he's got some podcast uh that's kind of cooking on the back burner right now i'm not going to put anything out there uh just yet but uh look uh, once i do find out some more information and he puts it out there i will definitely be plugging it here on the show uh tim is a really good guy and i appreciate your writing in tim thank you very much for your continued listenership Our next email comes from Adam Tebow, and its subject is Mysterians and General Show Commentary. Adam writes, Luke! Adam! I finally managed to get my podcatcher app to pick up your show reliably. For some reason, it hasn't liked the show feed in the past, and I listen to all my podcasts on my phone. I'll break in here and say that I remember very early on in the run of this show, the static in the intro before we had the intro tag that Chris Honeywell so wonderfully put together uh, for this show that features the uh, the Ultra Q music. Uh, when it was just the static at the beginning, if I put the static in for too long, I would break iTunes. So, <laughs> uh, and, and people tell me, oh, it won't download right off of iTunes because of the static. If I just jump ahead, it's okay. So I don't know, but I'm glad that, that the podcatcher works for you now, Adam. Uh, Adam continues, after listening to your rundown of the Mysterians, I really wanted to watch it. Listening to the show reminded me of when I saw the DVD you mentioned in a fries back when I was living in Atlanta. I was really tempted to pick it up then, and now I wish I had. That way, I would be able to watch the movie and apparently sell it for quite a profit. Amen to that. Good gravy. If I had known some of the prices some of these uh, tokusatsu DVDs would have gone for, I'd have shelled it out back then. Random thoughts in the movie. What's with it with aliens in the 50s wanting our women anyway? Was every was everyone in Hollywood slash Tokyo insecure or something? Always stuck me as an odd plot point. I just like to say it's because Earth girls are friggin' hot. Not to sound like shag, but, you know. Come on, who are the hottest girls you know? They all live on Earth, right? I mean... I mean, that just goes without saying. I mean, if I'm going to fly across the space, you know, Earth girls are still the slamminess ones in the galaxy. You mentioned the robot showing back up later on. What movie was that? Mogra shows back up in Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla in Heisei form, where he's uh, still a robot based on a mole, but now he can split in two, and he's got a spiral grenades, and he's still got a Woody Woodpecker nose and all that. The Mogra never shows up again in the Showa films, only in his Heisei version. Did this movie feature the nearly ubiquitous gang of mysteriously parentless Japanese children? I figure you would have mentioned them if so, but their absence would have been unusual in the era, right? Uh, Mysterians does not feature any children, really, of any note. There's a few incidental kids here and there. 
this that would not become a trope more so until the 60s and you get into when this was clearly being aimed at a children's audience uh Dai's gamera films a real good example of this but also uh stuff that toai would put out that event um edited from tv shows uh invasion of the neptune men prince of space other uh, mst3k fodder of that uh of that type that's when you get the more kid identification characters in the kid gang sort of stuff in the 50s we didn't really see that as much and uh, so it is not on display in the Mysterians. Whether that impacts your enjoyment of the film or not, your mileage may vary. Adam continues, Shogun Warriors sounds like a blast. Strange that it's so hard to find. Marvel's licensed properties are sometimes literally a dime a dozen in discount bins. I find it really funny that licensed books get such a bad rap, but between this, ROM, and Micronauts, the licensed books of that era were firing on all cylinders. I totally agree with that, by the way. Just wanted to say that. Uh, I think Shogun Warriors may be harder to find just from print runs compared to ROM and Micronauts. I, I really think it comes down to that because ROM and Micronauts sold a lot better. Uh, even though Shogun Warriors, I've really enjoyed it. It never was a big seller, com- especially compared to uh, ROM, which ran for a long time, and Micronauts, which for a while was a very, very popular book. Can't wait for Marvel Godzilla. I picked up the essential for that one, so I'll be able to follow along. Funny story, the first edition of that essential was really hard to find for several years back in the early 2000s. I spotted it in my local comic shop and bought it, thinking I had found an overlooked treasure, only to find out that they had recently reissued it and I could have safely waited. Say la vie. Anyway, great show, man. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. And Adam, uh, you can find Adam over at, um, he is part of the crew over at Days of Future Cast, daysoffuturecast.libson.com. Uh, him and a few of his buddies all discuss comics and whatever uh, strikes their fancy. Great show. Really fun listening to those guys. Uh, I'm behind a few episodes because Libson has been blocked at work, but other than that, really good. And Adam's a real cool guy, so uh, uh, give him a listen. To, um, I also have that same reissue of Essential uh, Godzilla after that first one became impossible to find because uh, uh, they were forced to, I think they had to put it out of print and then had to get a new agreement with Toho or some kind, one of those typical legal things as it always is with exporting giant monsters to this country. Uh, I have a few issues of the, uh, single issues of it. I'm trying to buy more. That book, uh, it, it routinely, I see it going for like four, five, six dollars an issue. It's more expensive than you might think. Uh, but, you know, as always, the hope springs eternal and we continue to hunt on eBay to find our uh, giant monster Marvel Comics fix. Thank you very much for writing in, Adam. And as I said, go check out Days of Futures cast to hear some more of Mr. Tebow. Our last email from today comes from Professor Alan Middleton in a simply entitled episode 38. And Professor writes, Luke, as always, you did a fine job making a few less-than-compelling Ultraman episodes sound exciting, as well as a less-than-compelling issue of Shogun Warriors. But it's not the content that makes a podcast episode work, it's the take that the host brings to the content that is key. And on that note, your mix of passion and information makes for a great episode. Keep up the good work, and keep them stomping. Signed, Professor Allen. Quarterbin Podcast and Shortbox Showcase. And of course, those shows can both be found on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Professor, thank you very much. Always appreciate the kind words. Um, you know, I, I know that you run into that sometimes over on the Quarterbin Podcast where you get a book that probably deserves to be in the Quarterbin, but, uh, um, but when your enthusiasm for the format of your show and the material that you're covering uh, shines through, it makes for an enjoyable listening experience. I do want to plug one show, or two shows, I should say, the professor did recently, uh, talking about uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter over on Quarterbin Podcast, and then one was a relatively geeky 
Presents, where they talked, um, it was a professor and a couple of guests talked about uh, Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one from Valiant, one of the most infamous uh, Quarterbin books of all time, as well as the 90s in general. Two really good episodes. Go ahead and check those out. Uh, do have to have a, a slight uh, you know, complaint there. If you're going to talk about Turok Dinosaur Hunter number one, maybe you should have had an actual Valiant fan on the show. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm keeping it real. That's all I'm doing, Alan. I'm keeping it real. Anyway, thank you very much, Professor, and thank you again for everyone for writing in. We've got a few more emails left in the email sack, but please keep those emails coming. I say this um, fairly frequently, but every podcaster will tell you those emails, those likes on Facebook, those messages on Twitter, those are why we do this, and this is a labor of love, and we appreciate, and I specifically appreciate, every bit of feedback that I get good, bad, or otherwise, and I thank you for taking the time to send feedback into the show as well as uh, listen. So, uh, Okay, so it's that time of the show now where we talk about the future. What are we going to be covering next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, next time we are going to be all comics all the time as we are going to be taking a look at the Harvey Comics Nemesis Comics imprint Ultraman miniseries from 1993. This was a three-issue miniseries. Uh, when Harvey went through some changes as far as ownership, and they were trying to put, uh, publish some material that wasn't just their typical kids' books, and their Nemesis line slash Ultra Comics line released this miniseries featuring the return of Ultraman to the comics pages here in the States. And it's a three-issue mini. We're going to be taking a look at that. We also, of course, have the uh, penultimate issue of Shogun Warriors with Shogun Warriors number 19. What will the the primal one have in store for the Shoguns and Reed Richards and the rest of the Fantastic Four? I have no idea because I haven't read the issue yet. So you'll find out pretty much shortly after I do. And uh, we'll also have your emails, news, anything else that fits into the episode. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll try and make it as jam-packed an episode as we can as always here on earth destruction directive so want to thank everyone uh, i take this opportunity to thank everyone for downloading the show i hope you enjoyed it and uh, until next time keep them stomping This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. 
And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.